Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm utterly and completely surrounded by my stuff. I've added some additional furniture into the den and it just doesn't fit. I have to do a vaulting manoeuvre just to slide into my desk chair. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. I'm reaching for number 50. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe, the eternal champion. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, this time she appears in many different forms, as she is in a Starburst feature. Fantasy females, Margiana, Carla, Laura Bellows and Naomi with a killing wink. Like Caroline Monroe, the eternal champion, fighting fantasy game books allow you to take on many roles. You are the hero, with only two dice, a pencil and an eraser. All you need to make your journey through this podcast. It's a big subject, so this episode will appear in several parts. We've had another review on Apple Podcasts, which is great as it helps others find the grog pod. This time it's from the gelatinous cast. If you want intelligent, in-depth analysis of tabletop role-playing games, primarily old and some new, then this is the show for you. Dirk and company might be grognards, but gamers of all stripes will find the warmest of welcomes here. Not a gatekeeper in sight. Thanks. That was from Gelatinous Cube podcast. Adam and Rosie are the hosts, and in each episode they tackle a short D&D prompt to provoke discussion. Check it out. I'm publishing this on the 27th of August, 2021, International Game Book Day. Back in 1982, Warlock of Firetop Mountain was launched to the unsuspecting world and created a publishing phenomena. Would this podcast even exist if it wasn't for Ian Livingstone and Games Workshop? Would you be listening? All of us roleplay gamers in the UK owe a great debt to Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson for bringing the hobby to these shores from the USA. Would D&D have reached us without them? Of course it would. However, what they brought was verve, energy and the foresight to tap into the UK geek culture, such as it was in the 1970s. It could have got stuck on the college campuses, but they reached out into other areas to find new audiences. They enjoyed games when they were at school, so it's people like them that they wanted to play. People like me. People like you, probably. 
I learned of the hobby thanks to a fascination with the Citadel miniatures that appeared in my local toy shop through an article, first in a series, it was promised, but never materialised, in Starburst Science Fiction and Film magazine by Steve Jackson. It opened my eyes to the possibilities. Tired of reality? The advert in the magazine asked, to which I said, yes, yes I am. The rest is history. You can listen to the previous 49 episodes to find out what happened next. I admit that I was more than a little starstruck to meet one of my heroes in the Zoom of role-playing rambling. Ian is very self-effacing about his role in creating a new gaming community from out of thin air and keying into UK culture such as Doctor Who and 2000 AD. And he was also a great talent spotter, launching the careers of many of the guests on the previous episodes of the Grog Pod. I trust you'll enjoy this interview with Ian as much as I did speaking to him. Also in this episode, I managed to meet Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, in an actual pub, in actual real life. We chatted in the snug of the Las O'Gowry in Manchester about our experiences with fighting fantasy. We have a different perspective from each other. I was never able to convince the rest of our group, Blythe, Simon or Eddie, about their virtues. They didn't share my enthusiasm. Blythe's been playing Crypt of the Sorcerer recently. Has his view changed? Wait and see. In this part... For Judge Blythe's rules, we concentrate on fighting fantasy as a tabletop game. In 1984, Steve Jackson launched the first version. It was subsequently developed by other writers, Mark Gascoigne and Pete Tamlin, into advanced fighting fantasy. The game books were brought together in the world of Titan, a fantastic supplement that Mark Gascoigne talked about in episode 18. The latest edition, available from Drive Through RPG, published by Eon Games, has been put together lovingly by Graham Botley. For a game launched in the mid-80s, it is remarkably story-orientated. The Games Master is a director, like a film director, and the whole design is built around making fun encounters, replicating the experiences in the books. It's also inspired adaptations of the system in games such as Troika and Quarrel and Fable. We talk about advanced fighting fantasy and some of the associated games as I prepare to direct a game for the first time. Mr Jim Moon from the excellent Hypnogoria podcast, please make it your mission to subscribe if you don't already, picks up on this simplicity of design when he describes his first game and he also talks about his last game he played and the game that means everything to him. Now, throughout this podcast, there's a wobbly internet connection, a slamming toilet door to make sure you're awake, and interventions from Lily Allen and others. But don't worry, it feels like you're in the room. I should point out that we haven't been to the pub with each other for 18 months, which might explain why it tails off a bit at the end. But please enjoy. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how our gaming of the past has shaped the gamers that we are today. 
I'm in the Zoom of role-playing rambling with a titan of gaming. Game designer, best-selling author of the fighting fantasy series that have sold 20 million copies worldwide, one of the founders of Games Workshop, and, in his own words, patient zero of the gaming geek culture, Ian Livingstone. Welcome. Hi. Nice to meet you. I, I, it's a big moment for me, this, because I always say to people, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Ian Livingstone have shaped the person I am today. That's very kind of you to say that, because I don't think I kind of rank alongside Bruce Springsteen. Oh. <laughs> far, far more uh, influential <laughs> than I've ever been. So I've got my copy of uh, Dicing with uh, Dragons here, uh, which you uh, wrote way back. And in the biography here, it said that you uh, became interested in uh, strategical games in 1968. So you've been playing games for as long as I've been alive. Why gaming? How did you get into it? When I started at school, I used to enjoy playing Monopoly uh, incessantly. Uh, I played chess for the school team. And then... I discovered diplomacy um, not long after leaving school and um, just realised that there's a lot more to life than Monopoly and traditional family board games. And um, I'd met Steve Jackson at school and, and John Peake. Um, and then we went our separate ways. Uh, Steve went to university, as did John, and I went to college. And we met actually back up in, in London. Uh, in the, 1973 and um we decided to share a flat together and we started playing games again which was great because uh, i played games with them at school and um discovering all these american games like from avalon hill and spi and and got really you know excited about this and we kept talking about how could we ever turn our hobby of playing into a games business and that was kind of the embryonic conversation that kept uh, yielded uh, Games Workshop coming out of those those discussions. But it was always a, a love of, of playing. Uh, is is just became you know, a passion for me. And uh, I've been very lucky to have forged a career, a career on the back of my, uh, my own hobby. It's very interesting that diplomacy seems to be a great connector at that period. It seems to be the game that brought fellow like-minded gamers together. Is that is that the case? Yeah, definitely. And I used to do work for Don Turbull, who lived quite close uh, in, in Altrincham, who had a postal diploma magazine called Albion. And I used to do some artwork and help him get it out the door and stuff. And uh, and it was through through Don, really, that I discovered Avalon Hill and um, and SBI games. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were these, all the hexagonal grid war games that were around, but they were hard to get. And I remember getting a copy of... Stalingrad and Africa Corps quite early on and, and some of the SPI games. And uh, <laughs> looking back, I can't believe <clears throat> I actually used to play them. I mean, it was quite intense work just, just setting them up, let alone playing them. But um, yeah, it's all those small counters on hexagonal rigs and combat results tables. Um, not really my cup of tea these days, that's for sure. And, and Don seems to have been a very influential figure around that time, because um, obviously he went on to do um, TSR UK, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was instrumental in, in making that happen. Um, obviously, um, through having known him so well, I, asked, I got him into D&D. &D. He got me into war games, I got him into D&D. &D. 
and he became obsessed with it. And I asked him to write uh, an article for issue one of White Dwarf, which is June 77. And he came up with the monster mark system. And uh, <laughs> it was baffling to me, but I thought, oh, this looks really impressive. We'll publish it. But I doubt anyone actually ever used it. It was just kind of endless, endless um, computational <laughs> adjustments for assessing monster strength. I mean, it's ludicrous, really, looking back. But uh, so, so Don became, you know, quite a big contributor to White Dwarf, and I uh, got him to do the Fiend Factory. Uh, I mean, yeah, um, Fiend Factory in, in White Dwarf, and uh, which I wrote quite a few monsters. And it was it was actually my idea to Gary Gygax to create the Fiend Folio as a, an addition to the Monster Manual, and they were up to eyeballs in publishing. And they thought it'd be great to get a a contribution from the UK because we were obviously TSR's official distributors. And um, you know, Gygax said yes, so we got this uh, contract. And so we used a lot of the monsters, obviously from Fiend Factory. And I asked Don if he'd become the editor of it because he was working on Fiend Factory, and he took that on board very, very happily. Um, and um, it was no surprise, obviously, that when TSR was formed, which I can talk to you about, TSR UK was formed, and I can give you the background to how that happened if you wish, but um, it was no surprise that Don was put in the position of, of managing director because of his, so, you know, his, his, his working relationship with, with Gary and the rest of CSR doing theme folio. It's great. And some of those uh, monsters still survive in the uh, current edition, don't they, that uh, started in the theme factory? Yeah, I think one of my own still in there, the hook horror. I mean, it was... It's actually a working title. I never got around to changing it. So it ended up being the hooker and it survived. And I like to win some of the, the you know, plastic figures of miniatures came out based on something that was just a working title, just a descriptive <laughs> title, but ended up being, uh, being used. So let's go back to um, how you discovered uh, role-playing games. How did, how, how did the, uh, you encounter them and uh, it, it, those early experiences of uh, playing, what was that like? John Peake, Steve Jackson and I decided to turn our hobby into this, uh, into this business and we thought um, we'd publish a newsletter, uh, the predecessor to White Dwarf, which was called Arl and Weasel and it was basically reaching out to other gamers saying we wanted to form a games community and, uh, and, and meet like-minded people and see if we could create a network because it obviously back in the, the early 70s, it was a very, very embryonic, the, the, the gaming hobby. And um, we published the first uh, Alan Weas in February 1975. And we sent out to everybody we knew. And Don Turmel had given me his, his mailing list because he'd ceased publication of Albion. And uh, so we sent it out to you know, a few hundred people. And but a copy actually found its way to Gary Gygax, although we hadn't sent it to him directly. And he wrote back and said, Love your magazine, here's this new game. I invented, what do you think? And we unwrapped it, and there it was. It was Dungeons and Dragons, it didn't look very much. Uh, the three kind of largely unintelligible rule books inside a very plain box. And uh, we played and became immediately obsessed by it. Steve and I just couldn't play enough D&D. John wasn't 
wasn't his cup of tea at all. Uh, he didn't like role playing. He was more into making traditional board games, and, and I mean that's how the Games Workshop name came about because he used to make because uh, he was a craftsman as well as being a civil engineer. He used to make Waru boards and Go boards and backgammon boards, and that's how Workshop got its name. <laughs> a, a workshop with all the wood shavings, etc. Anyway, to get back to the D and D side, we. We ordered six copies because that's all the money we had in the world available in spare cash. And on the back of that order, we got a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of Europe from Gary because he was just happy to have a European distributor. But what we didn't know, he was also operating in a very amateurish way. He only printed a thousand copies of D and D, and um, and um, that's how it started. We were both kind of role-playing businessmen about a role-playing game. So we were operating out of a third floor flat in Shepherd's Bush and selling it mainly through through mail ordering in Alan Weasel. And occasionally people would be <laughs> come along to our flat because obviously the, the address was in Alan Weasel expecting to find a shop because of the name and would be bemused outside. We'd see them on the street and say, you want games for a shop? Up here, mate. So they come up uh, up the stairs and mooch around the, the messy living room looking for boxes of games and buy a couple and, and leave. But um yeah it was it was it was pretty fun in those days. So I used to play you know, D and D all the time but still played lots of board games as well. And I'm upset as you might see, although obviously this is a recording, an audio recording in, in my room. I'm surrounded with a collection of over a thousand board games, still passionate buyer and collector and player of board games. And that early uh, group, so obviously you and Steve were playing, but is that how you met uh, Al before it and um, some of those other people that were early um, early contributors to Workshop? Albie didn't come on board until 78 after we'd opened our first shop because we didn't have anywhere to operate from. So we started off in our flat in 75 um john left in early 76 steve and i went to the states to go to gen con to meet gary and all the fledgling games companies that were popping up and we signed a, a kind of distribution agreements with loads of of these young companies and um came back to the the uk and had literally no money we had stock arriving and we needed a, a place to live and be an office to operate out of. And we couldn't afford both because we went to the bank manager and said, I'd like to borrow some money for our great games business. It's based on this role-playing game, which you kill monsters and find treasure and go on these fantastic journeys of the mind. And the bank manager looked at us rather like a, a dog watching television, had no understanding of what we we're talking about and asked us to leave. <laughs> I guess in history we did, we did look a bit strange and just expected them to be fanatic about D&D, which clearly was was not really something new about much in those days. So after two years of, of 25 issues of Alan Weasel, we stopped publishing it and started um, publishing White Dwarf magazine. But before that point, you know, because we hadn't got the money from the bank manager, Steve and I had to live in his van for three months. And we found a, an office the size of a bread bin, as I call it, um, where we operated our our mail order business, so we lived this very short triangle life. We joined a squash club so we could get a shave, a shower, etc. In the mornings, near to the office, uh, so we'd get out of his stinky van 
early in the mornings, go into the squash club to get freshened up and then into the office for till about midnight doing mail orders and then back into the old van. Then it was winter and it's the rain would be pounding on the tin roof, keeping us awake half the night. But, um, you know, if we were driven by a passion and it, you know, when you're young and, and determining your own destiny, it's, it's just great to do that. And, um, we carried on, but, um, the, the small office got to a point that was unmanageable. This just couldn't get enough stock. People couldn't get in the office. It was so small. Customers had to be turned away almost or wait in line. And so we asked the landlords to find, because they were state agents, to find us premises for a shop. And we opened our first shop in Dalling Road, Hammersmith, in April 1978. And, um, you know, amazed. There was a huge line of people outside. But I'd also been, you know, we'd had nearly a year of, uh, of uh, putting together White Dwarf magazine. Again, I was doing all the production in a bedroom. We finally managed to find a, a flat. I had enough money for a flat. But um, that's when we started hiring people was when we had our first shop. We had some space at last. Um, retail downstairs and office and production upstairs for doing trade orders and, and putting White Dwarf together and, and then Games Workshop publications, uh, basic ones like dungeon floor plans and character sheets and stuff like that. And that's when Al became on board. And then he he was amazing and became you know, the the driver of all the games and, and supplements that we we put together, in, including the, the theme folio and, and the first four games that we did, uh, Doctor Who, uh, Apocalypse, uh, Warlock, and uh, Battle of the Four Winds. He was doing a lot of the typesetting, wasn't he, as well as writing? Yeah, he was a creative genius. Uh, he was a, a real whirlwind. He was also a great dungeon master. He was a f- fantastic raconteur and had some very imaginative mind that created some very, very interesting dungeons, so we say. <laughs> and many of our listeners have ma- made the pilgrimage to Dalling Road. And what people talk about is that community atmosphere that was there. Um, and uh, was, that, was that something that you actively fostered? I don't think it's that we actively fostered it. We just wanted to have people at workshop who were like-minded and, and thought like us. We could have easily hired retailers who previously worked in you know, department stores or other retail outlets, but we wanted people who were gamers. And it became known really as, as the Games Workshop experience. No one was trying to hard sell you, but their enthusiasm explaining rules and telling people about miniatures or what magazines should be read and have you seen this supplement there? That that knowledge was was you know infectious and, and created you know very successful sales because of of people we employ people like us and who sold to people like them. So it's uh it had a, a definitely a a culture that was very you know games friendly and, and not being judged as the usual thing oh they're just a bunch of geeks they're a bunch of nerds no we were we were very happy with who we, we were and who we employed yeah uh, we've had uh, tim olson on the uh, show and he was saying that uh, at, when the shop closed you would be on the park playing uh, baseball and there was a real um like a family around it like a cottage industry yeah, we were not hierarchical at all. You know, we were all, it was a, definitely a, a team. Um, we all had our, our roles to play, but um, we definitely thought we were building a, 
you know, a, a very horizontal structured organization where everyone's, everyone's opinion counted and everyone was, you know, part of the Games Workshop family in those days. The magic that you and Steve brought was, role-playing games were a conceptual leap, weren't they? It's a paradigm shift in gaming. It could it could have come over and got stuck in the hobby market, but what you did is articulate it to a wider group, to a, a wider audience. You, you actually created uh, an audience for it. Um, I, I discovered role-playing through a Starburst magazine article that Steve wrote and that explained what it was and so I could understand it. So that, what, what was your thinking around that and, and, and you know, what, how, how did you get that? Um, finesse in trying to describe what uh, the hobby was? Well, uh, we see role-playing as kind of theatre on the fly. You know, it's just fantastic social interaction. And, you know, we all love storytelling. You know, it helps define us a few words, human beings, play and storytelling. And we wanted to kind of demystify role-playing because if you look at the rule books, they are quite intimidating. You know, thousands of rules and reference tables to a non-gamer, and they would think, why on earth could this possibly be fun? But we always maintain that these are to be referred to as and when needed. You don't really need to get too deep into the rules knowledge until it's a you need to, res- to resolve some sort of conflict or decision. So you know, the, 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 I mean, Dave Arneson. You know, he, there were no rules when he was coming up with the original concepts around Blackmore and and then you know, Gary Gygax put some structure into those rules and they collaborated to, to put out D&D, but it was all about immersing yourself in the shoes of a character and going on these fantastic journeys of the mind. And, and the better the storyteller, Dungeon Master, the better the experience was. So it's, for us, it was trying to get over that magic of storytelling and play rather than seeing it as this big set set of rules like a would only appeal to a lawyer <laughs> yeah absolutely and um moving on from that obviously um one of the great recruiters of into the hobby was the fighting fantasy series and warlock of fire top mountain so how did that come about uh, we used to run games days workshop and uh, at games day 79 we had other trade stands there, one of which was Penguin Books, and an editor called Geraldine Cook was launching a book, I think it was called Plain Politics. And she was fascinated by you know, several thousand people, mainly obsessing around D&D and other role-playing games. And she asked Steve and I at the end of the show if we were prepared to write a book about role-playing. And we kind of glibly said, well, rather than book, writing a book about role-playing, let's give people a chance to experience role-playing because normal books are passive experience. Role-playing is interactive experience. So why don't we give them an interactive experience in a book? And she said, that was an amazing idea. Send us a synopsis. So we said, okay, without having a clue what we're going to do. So Steve and I worked on what became known as the magic quest, um, which was this scenario in which you, the reader were the, were the, were the hero. And she took the synopsis to the uh, managing director of Penguin Books, apparently who laughed so hard he nearly hit his head on the table. 
said, no one's ever going to play an, an interactive book. What are you talking about? But to Geraldine's credit, she kept on with this because she was a firm believer in it. And eventually uh, Puffin label, the children's label, agreed to publish the book. So then we spent another best part of the year writing it. And, and I wrote the first half up to the river and Steve wrote the second half after the river. And then Steve um, had to kind of edit the whole thing into a consistent style. Um, and thus the Warlock Fire Up Mountain was born. But Penguin under their puffin label, still didn't have much belief in it. They only did a, a small print run when it came out in August 1982. And, um, but it sold out and sold out and sold out and had to keep reprinting. And what we tried to do with, with Warlock was take the essence of a role-playing experience and distill it down to uh, choice-making where the book replaces the Dungeon Master. But rather than just choosing a chapter, we wanted to attach a game system to it to reflect you know, the, the fun of, of, of combat and other kind of moments where you have a bit of dice rolling to make it exciting things happen. So that's how the, the, you know, the, the three attributes of strength, of uh, skill, stamina and luck became added to the branching narrative. So, yeah, it's, it was amazing that it just Warlock just took off and you know, Final Fantasy really started to fly to the point where, yeah, there was certainly by the time Death Trap Dungeon came out in 1984, um, a normal kids' book was selling about 5,000 copies in the UK, and Death Trap sold nearly 400,000 copies. And uh, had a lot of fun time in the media with that. Most of the media, of course, was negative because because uh, it had the word game in it. Final Fantasy game book, people thought it was going to be trivial or harmful uh, and had no had no uh, positives to um, to offer the readers um, you know the, the evangelical alliance published an eight-page warning guide about them saying because you're interacting with ghouls and demons you're bound to get possessed by the devil and you know, the petition sent in about them there's magazine articles saying the dangers of children using their imagination too much at the same time teachers started to realize the positives about Great for reluctant readers, encouraging creative writing, uh, critical thinking, uh, and how giving children agency, empowering them to make the choices, was fantastic for their for 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 being able to be in control of events. And so, whilst media were criticising, the establishment was beginning to recognise the value of the fact they actually raised literacy levels by some seventeen percent of the time. Like, hey, Dad, what's the sarcophagus? <laughs> and uh, and people got really curious about language and 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 problem solving. So they were kind of a, a kind of a contextual hub for learning in many ways. And and um, you know, it made me understand that the power of plays goes beyond entertain entertainment. What strikes me about them, coming back to them is there's a, an aesthetic about them, isn't there? And um, the artwork in them is, is great. So what was that experience, collaborating with the likes of uh, Russ Nicholson and Ian McCaig? Well, uh, that was a fascinating conversation with, with Penguin Books at the time because they were going under their Puffin imprint, children's label. They wanted to have covers that were very safe and secure. They wanted a cover with... 
uh, a little gnome sitting on a toadstool with butterflies buzzing around in the air. And, uh, you know, we wanted Covers Up Threat to rip the face off the readers yeah. and use our Games Workshop artists. Uh, but to their credit, they did agree to it. So, and then, so we used Russ Nicholson for the illustration of Warlock and, and Peter Jones for his uh, iconic cover of Warlock. And then we use other Games Workshop artists. I mean, my, you know, my favourite was undoubtedly Ian McKaig, and he did four amazing covers for me at City of Thieves. Well, the first one was Forest of Doom, and City of Thieves, Death Trap Dungeon, and Ireland of the Lizard King. And he actually did the internals on City of Thieves and Death Trap Dungeon. I don't think they've ever been beaten in, in terms of capturing a moment. If you look at the cover of Forest of Doom with the shape changer, with the... Yeah, the spikes coming out of the, the the goblin's clothes and threatening the reader. I mean, it's you know, it's it's uh, it really draws you in and sets sets an atmosphere that is really enticing, as I'm sure you probably found as a reader. Absolutely, and um, I've gone back through uh, Death Trap Dungeon, and I've had uh, post traumatic stress um, as I've died several times already. <laughs> it, is it true that there's one true way through it? Well, there is. There are usually multiple ways of getting through, but you know, a lot of them don't lead to success. Death Trap Dungeon, yeah, you know, I think it's kind of a classic because it was a yeah an archetypal dungeon crawl, but with a with a with a bit of a twist. Effect. You know, I used to get a lot of comments, shall we say, but. You befriend the, the the barbarian Throm, only to have to fight him to the death later on in the book, and uh, that upset a lot of people. I think I get a lot of stick for killing off Throm and also killing off Mungo in Island of the Lizard King. You, you're still doing them, haven't you? Uh, recently, you've um, added a couple to the series, uh, Port of Peril and yeah. uh, Assassins of... Uh, so is it something that you still enjoy doing? It's a, it's a passion project. I mean, the books don't sell anything like the numbers they did in the in the eighties and early nineties. But you know, something that's very close to my heart to have, uh, you know, a series of books that survive the test of time is is really rewarding and and it makes you feel great. And 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 talking to the fans and we you know, there's there's fighting fantasy fest where we meet the fans and and talk about. You know, the world's been created, and I think we, we, you know, we're definitely as enthusiastic as anybody about about the world we've created, the books we've written, and yeah, definitely going to do. Well, I'll try and I'm definitely committed to do one more. I don't know any more after that because uh, you know I'm now 71 years of age, and uh, you know it's it gets more challenging every time, but um, I really enjoy it. And of course, these days you have to write for two audiences. You have to write for the original ten-year-olds, but also the forty-year-olds masquerading as ten-year-olds, and mm-hmm. the the ones who who in their forties tend to be very critical. They don't really see it through a child's mind anymore. But uh, so we have to try and bridge the two the two markets. And going back to it as a game, there is a, an appealing simplicity uh, to it. Um, and it did turn into a tabletop game, didn't it, with supporting supplements. Um, we had uh, Mark Gascoigne on talking about uh, Titan and putting that together. Um, so it, it, yeah. it, is it something that you've actually played as a tabletop game? 
Yeah, but not for a long time. I mean, they don't play board role playing games anymore of any any of any description. It's just a time thing, and trying to get six people or more together to play through is uh, difficult. But we do play board games. I think our attention span is such that. Uh, so I still play board games with Steve Jackson, Peter Marnews from the video games industry, and uh, a few other couple of other friends as well. So we, we enjoy games that take no longer than an hour these days. And not to so we kind of mid Euro type games, you know, like uh, Ticket to Ride, obviously, and um, Small World and Kalos and Seven Wonders and that kind of kind of mid tier complexity. And um, as well as fighting fantasy tabletop game, you you were always looking, weren't you, in the uh, early eighties to ha- have your own um, uh, role playing game, uh, and uh, that's how Warhammer came about. Yeah. And Dave Morris told us that there was actually a precursor adventure that actually didn't uh, appear. So it, was that as a result of uh, losing the D&D uh, licence that you felt like you had to create your own? Yeah, well, we had the D&D licence for three years, um, at the end of which Gary Gygates came over to see us and said he wanted to merge Games Workshop with TSR, being kind of independently-minded, still young Brits at the time and not wishing to spend half our life in in Wisconsin, we said no to that merger. Um, it was a very tough and, I'd say, brave decision to do that because suddenly we had lost exclusivity to D&D. We still remain the largest distributor, but you know, Gary said, look, we're going to have to set up TSR UK now, and that's obviously what happened with, with Don at the helm. But we wanted to forge our own destiny. We had our magazine. We had Citadel miniatures. We had we had you know a growing number of um, trade accounts that we were selling, supplying wholesale. And we thought we would be able to just to live without exclusivity of D and D. Kind of build up our own product line at the same time, still being able to distribute D and D. Put us in a pretty strong position, I think, to remain independent. And uh, we did that. So we released four board games um, pretty quickly. And then, of course, always looking for that game that was going to be on a par with, with D&D. And that's really how Warhammer came about with um, Brian Ansell, Rick Priestley and Richard Halliwell uh, working on, on that. And but Again, no one knew how big Warhammer was going to be. Like, no one knew how D&D was going to be so amazingly successful either. But um, in the first 3,000 copies of Warhammer sold out pretty quickly. And then Brian, who was running Citadel at the time, was always one to reinvest pretty quickly. So the next iteration of Warhammer, a bigger box, more components, uh, cardboard of the miniatures, and kept investing, investing, investing in in the production value of anything that showed any any sign of being uh, successful over time, and that's really was how Warhammer came about. And uh, last year, it was uh, it was bigger than some of the utility companies, wasn't it, in terms of value? Um, so, out, out of um, sleeping out of the back of the van, it's become a huge, huge uh, traded company. Yeah, I mean, some might say we're a bit foolish to sell out in in 1991, but um, hey, you know, we we'd enjoyed the ride for 17 years, and uh, 
it reached a stage that with with writing Final Fantasy game books and going on world author tours and running games workshop at the same time wasn't viable. So we appointed Brian Ansell as, as MD in, in the late 80s and then all of us saw that in 1999 and then the company was floated two years later on the London Stock Exchange and, and today as you rightly observe it's now worth over three and a half billion pounds so uh, that's been quite quite a lot of value being uh, added to that company since those early days in the van but um yeah it's again it's a it's a great success story in many ways you know thousands of jobs intellectual property big export you know it's i'm very proud to play my part in that and thank you very much uh, ian and uh, you're going to come back next time and face the games master screen thank you thank you there once was a popular magazine Big on the role-playing gaming scene White Dwarf was its name But despite its name Those games had met their foe Oh, and the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must take the leave and go Ian Livingston was editor back in the day till fighting fantasy lured him away. The Livingston's are here to stay. Brian made it so. And oh, then the Anselman come taking production to Nottingham. Role playing games are not welcome. They must make the leave and go. Lord, then the Anselman come taking production to Nottingham. Role playing games. Not welcome, they must take the leave and go. 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 Brian was my own right. What's wrong with you? Just do it, do what you normally do. Hang on, there he goes. Open box! Welcome to Open Box. We're in the snug of the Glass Agari in Manchester, the greatest city on the earth. And I'm here with Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And we're having ales. It's like returning to Brie after uh, <laughs> yeah. a tumultuous adventure and, well, being locked up in. Well, being locked room. up in your house for 18 months, <laughs> whether you call that an adventure. Maybe it is. Yeah. At times when I thought the eye of Sauron was uh, staring at me in my little room. But I'm out of it now. I'm in here. Yeah. Freedom. At last. Yeah. Freedom. 18 months since we've been in here in the pub. Yeah. Incredible, isn't it? It's uh, it's amazing because they've built uh, Mega City 1 all around the pub. Haven't <laughs> they? Yeah. It's in a kind of shadow, weird shadow now, you know. It's, yeah, but the uh, skyscrapers where the BBC used to be, um, it's a massive skyscraper, and really? all around it's like transformed. You know, you get, I keep expecting a, a judge to come around the corner and put me in an <laughs> ISO cube. Fred G Block. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should be Fred G Block. That's what you should call it. Yeah. Manchester, after all. So we're back in the uh, snug of the Lassa Garrett. We've been doing this online for the last uh, 18 months, so it's good to see you in 3D. Yes, without any kind of lag or delay. Although we have had a few pints, so there could be a different lag or delay. Yeah. But but it's not going to be a technological one. Yeah. Alcohol-induced one. Yeah. 
You're on mute. 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 <laughs> anyway, and we're uh, going to talk today about uh, fighting fantasy oh. and going back to uh, fighting fantasy. And we've got different experiences of this, haven't we? It's a mm. bit. Yeah. I, I don't think people appreciate that back in the eighties, it was a real phenomenon, oh. and there would be people who were listening to this who probably started the role playing experience yeah. by listening to them. Yeah, that is a common. That is a common phenomena isn't it that you do get people who who got into role-playing games through fighting fantasy books yeah whereas we we didn't we they came later for us didn't they we were already quite into role-playing when fighting fantasy came along yeah a bit later because i went when warlock of fire top mountain i remember seeing adverts for it in white dwarf and I, i'm pretty sure there used to be a, a, a if i had time i'd go back and look and see but i'm sure there's competition to win a great big lead uh, dragon. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. You know, vaguely, there was some competition to win something like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Red Dragon. And I didn't really know what it was from the description in uh, White War. Yeah. But it appeared on the Book Tower. Do you remember the Book Tower? I do. Tom Baker. Yeah, yeah, Tom Baker. He used to host that, didn't he? Running around this... Yeah, after he'd, after he'd finished being Doctor Who. He hosted the book tower, didn't he? In his weird library, running around reading stuff from books. Yeah. Encouraging kids to read. Yeah. yeah. It was like a reincarnation as the doctor. The doctor as a librarian. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what it was, wasn't it? He played the same kind of character, really. Yeah. And there was a segment in there that was introducing Warlock of Firetop Mountain, and it was Russ Nicholson's illustrations mm. done on a very white background. And... I, I think they may have been animated, but I'm not sure. It was one of those things where it probably had a voiceover that made it seem that they were animated. Yeah. But straight away I thought, I've got to go and get it. Because I thought I got it when it came out, but I think I got like the second or third printing of it because it was really popular. It sold really quickly. Um, and I think after seeing it on the book tower, I thought, I've got to get it. Yeah. They were it, phenomenally popular, you know. That's, yeah. We might come on to that later in terms of yeah. whether they are a gateway to role playing, but yeah, they were really, really popular. You could tell they were popular because uh, the kids at school had them, didn't they? Even though they may not have seen the association with role playing. No, and I, I think that's always one of the odd things about about it, really, because the, one of the traditional kind of things with fighting fantasy is that people. In, in role-playing who you meet will often say, ah, well, I got I got fighting fantasy, that got me into role-playing, which is an obvious progression, isn't it? But it wasn't everyone's progression. No. I mean, I can remember uh, a kid at school, Simon, not that Simon, another Simon, who we tried to encourage to play role-playing Stump. games. Stump, yeah, to, to, <laughs> to play role-playing games. He was into fighting fantasy. But he didn't like role-playing games. He didn't like role-playing games. Yeah. He never made that move. And I, I suppose that's true of a lot of people because they, they sold they sold in the millions. But I think it's fair to say it's not as if all those millions got into role-playing games. No. Some people did, but not everyone. I think that is kind of interesting. It's an interesting element of the story and it's an interesting thing when you compare our reactions the way we both responded to fighting fantasy books. That yeah. They're not necessarily a conduit into role-play or a gateway into role-play for everybody. No, no. And uh, did you did you have uh, 
walk a fight up mountain. I'd walk a fight up mountain, yeah. And I had one or two others, but only one or two others. Yeah. And Forest to Doom. Forest to Doom, one of them. Yeah, Forest to Doom. Yeah, I had Forest to Doom, but I think I had two or three more. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I got really into them. I remember spending an entire day doing Warlock or Fight Up Mountain. Uh, in the same way that, you know, I criticise my uh, kids now for <laughs> spending all day on the, the Xbox and trying to conquer uh, different levels. I think I was determined one Saturday. I, I think I, I even turned down going into town with you and Simon yeah. walking down to complete it. You did become quite obsessed with them. You, you were quite fixated on them. You bought them kind of religiously. And I, yeah. I was the opposite. I couldn't really be bothered with them. Yeah. You know. And it's not... I have to put cards on the table. I'm not I'm not saying they're not any good. I mm. think they're actually very good in their own way. They're very well written and mm. cleverly put together. But I, I think... And this might be my mistake, but I always wanted them to scratch the RPG itch, and they never did. No, no. And I think, for the purposes of this podcast, we have revisited them, haven't we? Yeah. And revisiting one of them, I think, has made me realise why they don't scratch that itch. Because there are some parallels with role-playing games, but they're not, they are not role-playing games. No, no. There's some, in some ways, they can't be. They can't be, can they? Because no. it's a programmed solo game. But they're not role-playing games. And no. I think, no. uh, back in the day, I sort of thought oh well it's all got Warlock Fight Up Mountain thought hey this would be like a role playing game play on your own even more role playing and then when I played it I thought it's not really no. it's not really doing it for me particularly no. you see I, I felt differently about them um, I suppose it's a bit like you know Nicorette patches <laughs> Nicorette patches <laughs> I there was a woman at work and you're supposed to use Nicorette patches when you're trying to give up smoking yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they were a way of like weaning you off the addiction. That's right, yeah. But she used to wear two or three of them in a day to supplement her smoking because she couldn't get enough. <laughs> you wore like... a nicotine hit. <laughs> <laughs> and in the same way, I, th- I think that's what um, uh, the fighting fantasy books did for me. They kind of supplemented what I was already experiencing. Yeah. And, it, and I think there is something uniquely absorbing about playing them mm. it brings you into um, the world much more on a personal level than it does around the table because you don't have to take into account the irritating views of other people do you? Spoken like a true meddler man now we're getting to see why I like them <laughs> They're, they're entirely based on your personal choices, yeah. and you are the hero, and that is something that. Back, yeah, yeah. Back in there, we did we did do one on one gaming occasionally, but that's what what appealed to me mm. about the game books. I used to sit down and I used to imagine myself as a single hero, single protagonist in my own story, and get yeah. really drawn into it. And as you say, some of them are really well written and. They're well written. Capture imagination. Yeah, they're well quite written. Quite vivid. They are quite vivid and well written. But I suppose I had the I had the, the opposite. It's kind of the opposite reaction, really. In that I felt frustrated because I didn't feel absorbed because I I always felt 
there is that and it's kind of like a, a it's kind of like a natural problem because of what they are it's 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 almost too much to ask for them to be anything more than that how could they be but I always felt frustrated by the fact that it was do you want to fight the monster or not you know and once you were fighting a monster you were just fighting them all it was was grinding out a result with dice all it was so once you were fighting the monster you were going to die or win right and all you were doing was rolling two dice and adding your skill and that that was it. You had very little, apart from using luck to bump your damage. Up, I don't know. So I think so. I think think a little later you would get sometimes the frustrating choice of, do you have the elephant shaped walking stick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you think I don't have the elephant shaped walking stick. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you get a bit of that. But I just found it. I found it frustrating because it was. It wasn't like a role-playing game. You couldn't do anything other than fight the monster or, well, fight the monster. You couldn't even run away, could you? you just no. That was it. You were going to grind out the result. And I suppose I sometimes found the first time I approached one of the books, I found them quite enjoyable and absorbing. Mm. But what I found annoying is the second time you approached it or the third time you approached it, it started to feel like a puzzle rather than right. an adventure yeah. because you had to go through the same things. So you got to a point where you thought, yeah, I think I'm doing the right thing here. Yeah, talk to the old man in the hut, uh, swap swap the dagger for the magic ring, uh, do this, do that, go into the woods, but don't put that helmet on because it's the helmet of ageing. Don't put that on this time, but do pick up that. Da, 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 da. Go through it. And it, it just felt it's a tedious puzzle list. It's like having to go through the same thing now to get to the point where I was. And of course, you could. I suppose you could start at the point where you got killed, couldn't you? But yeah. I felt like cheating. Yeah. You know. But then again, who am I cheating on? Me, you know. But that, that's another aspect of them, isn't it? The cheating aspect. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I never did that. Well, yeah. I, I never did. But then, oh, why am I not doing that? But anyway, but but you had to go through the same thing, and it became like a puzzle. And as you know, I think we may have covered this again in the podcast, yeah. as well as caravans, yeah. camping. I don't like puzzles either. Yeah. I'll have nothing to do with the crossword puzzle or Sudoku or whatever they're called. Can't be bothered with them. Yeah. Why are you bothering with this? <laughs> and that, and it, I think that was the trouble with them. You got, like you, you'd sit there all day trying to crack the Warlock Firetop Mountain. Getting and through I, that maze. And get yeah, and I just, I just felt like, I've done this, bit. turn to page 38, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to 38 three times already. I've got to get to right 38, right, yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah, no, don't go that way because you don't. Right, go that way. And it just felt like a puzzle, and it, it deteriorated. I think over the more you did a book, the more it deteriorated into being like a puzzle rather than an adventure. Yeah. And I found that this time when we revisited it, so we did Crypt of the Sorcerer. The first time I did it, I thought, yeah, it's all right. This maybe I've underestimated it. But then the second time I did it, I felt that feeling of oh, it's a bit tedious now. I've got to go through the same things to yeah. try and get to the point I was at. This, this, as you know. After, over the years, it's been a nostalgia-based uh, podcast. Um, maybe I've got more nostalgia for it mm. than you have because I had more experience of them. Um, I, I think, unlike some of the games that we used to play, I've got very vivid memories of some of the encounters experienced in yeah. Fantasy Star Fantasy books. Recently, I did Death Trap Dungeon again and uh, was reacquainted with From the Barbarian, and, and it brought up uh, mm. memories of where I was uh, on holiday 
when I was playing that particular scene. And there is something particularly unique because it's in a book format that does bring up that sense of nostalgia. I think it's got so individual, so personal. And uh, it, I suppose it's about your relationship, not only with the content, but with the idea of reading as well. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too profound. No, I, I, I don't think so. I think, I think what you did, I think you accepted them more for what they were. And I think that's what you need to do with them. You have to accept them more for what they are. I think my mistake was to try and get from them the experience of a role-playing game. And I don't think that you do get that experience. No. I can see why they might lead someone on to a role-playing game, because they do have some parallels, but they are a different thing. Yeah. They, are, they are different. They're not the same as sitting around a table with four or five people um, working together and also that sense that it's more of a... Again, I, I might sound pretentious and, you know, more too profound now, but that sense of it's more of a free-form experience where in a role-playing game, when you're fighting the goblin, you can come up with an idea off the top of your head and suggest that to the games master. The games master might go, hmm, that's a good idea, yeah, you can do that. Whereas in fighting fantasy, you can't do that. You're locked in. And it's not, it's not fighting fantasy's fault. As I said earlier, how can it be anything other than that? Yeah. You know, and I suppose they're a bit, they're a bit like, it's a bit like my disinterest in computer games. Yeah, you know, when the kids were playing Fable when they were young, I looked to look at it and think, why does this appeal to me? Because it, it's it's like a role-playing game. Yeah, but but it lacks that. I don't know openness, free-form element. One of the great things in a role-playing game is somebody throws something in that you're just not expecting. Yeah, and that's great. But you just don't get that in fighting. You just don't get it. You can't do it. No, You're locked into go this way or go that way. Yeah, and that for me never really worked as well. But I think, but that said, I do think it was me looking for something that isn't there. Yeah, you know. One of the things um, that it did do is it changed my way of thinking about how to construct adventures because. It did give a very active way of showing you how scenarios could work mm. and encounters could work. And I ended up uh, transferring that into the games that I produced for us to play. And I remember Simon being particularly critical of me turning all of the scenarios I wrote into fighting fantasy. Do, do you remember that? I do remember that, but then I thought I was a bit rich coming from a man who spent two hours pretending to be a Cliff Richard dragon because he, <laughs> he didn't have the Dungeon Master's guy. He's a bit, bit rich criticising someone's scenario or building technique, isn't it? But, but I do think it has, it did have influence on um, my personal game. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned before, uh, Fish Fingers, uh, when I went, uh, <laughs> uh, went uh, a bit crazy producing a personal yeah. game. And I used to construct them like fighting fantasy encounters to very elaborate ones yeah. with a series of options at the end of it. Um, and I do yeah. think I, I do think it had a real influence on oh, No, I, I can see that because they, they are. This is what I mean. I have a kind of strange, strange relationship to them because I'm very conscious now as I'm speaking as if I'm slagging them off and saying, oh, they're rubbish, I didn't like them. That, that isn't really how I feel about them because I do think they have 
lots of good ideas and there's lots of little gems in them and ideas in them isn't there that yeah. if you were doing a kind of old school fantasy game you yeah. could go through the fighting fantasy books and pillage loads of encounters death trap dungeon is just it? pillage loads of things that are great you know yeah. they're not they're not I don't think they're no good yeah. you know I think there's loads of ideas in them and in terms of what they are they, in some ways they are brilliant they're yeah. colourful they're well written well put together you know, cleverly kind of constructed, but cleverly constructed like a puzzle's constructed, you know? Yeah. Like a baked bean jigsaw. You know a baked bean jigsaw? Look at baked bean jigsaw and go, oh, yeah, that's that's hard, isn't it, to do, isn't it? That's yeah. clever, because it's... But I'm not going to do it. If I had to say to you, <laughs> yeah. there was a, a group of terrorists that trapped you, put a gun to your head... Oh, yeah. ..and said, right... You're gonna to have to complete a fighting fantasy, mm. a game book. Which one would you want to complete? Uh, and these terrorists are who? Hy- <laughs> who are these people? A hypothetical question: Liberation from? <laughs> <laughs> they decide to put a gun to my head on the basis of what are they trying to achieve? <laughs> What's the what are they, Never mind the, the motives. Police negotiator comes in. You got Blythe held hostage. What, what do you want to achieve? All just we want to know, all we want to know is which gear book he wants to do. Just just pick the safety, a is the safety catch gone off the gun now? Come on, Blythe, which one? <laughs> oh, no, no. Um, I think it would be... It would be the Warlock Fighter at Mainsy, wouldn't it? It'd have yeah. to be, because it's the iconic... There you go, then. It's still I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. the Warlock Fighter at Mainsy, would, would they shoot me? Is yeah, that the wrong... Are they shooting me for that one? No, they're not going to shoot you, but what they're going to do is I'm going to give you a copy of it and for the next part of the podcast, <laughs> you're going to have to go through it and you're going to have to complete it. Is it the hardest one? It is really Is it the hardest one? It, it's not the hardest What's one. What's the hardest one? They've got a gun to your head. They've released me. A hypothetical <laughs> liberation front got a gun to your head and they want to know, right, Dirk, which is the most difficult... And don't get it wrong. The safety cat has <laughs> gone off again. It's a hypothetical police. Um, it, it difficult. I, I don't know. It, I think um, Death Tra- Trap Dungeon is a tricky one and it's very enjoyable. Um, but you can make it, it's quite arbitrary. So you can mm. make the wrong cho- choices. So you can decide to eat a mushroom, for example, and then inflate into the size of a, a beach a massive beach ball yeah. and not be able to get through the door and that's it whereas yeah. you know you could eat another thing and it yeah, could yeah, give yeah. you extra well that, that's again you see that comes back to my frustration because in Crypt of the Sorcerer there's this you, spoilers now but you find some treasure and there's a helmet you put the helmet on and it's the helmet of ageing yeah. so you lose stamina and you lose some skill I think well, there's no way really of knowing. I mean, they, and I suppose that's the thing. If it was a role-playing game, you'd go, okay, part of the fun would be, yeah. you know, he found his helmet, does a little magical, kind of do a few rolls to try and work out, you know, yeah. which of the party's going to put it on, all that kind of thing. But, of course, in fighting fantasy, understandably, it just says, do you want to put the helmet on? Um, yeah, go on, I'll put it on. Oh, it's the helmet of ageing. Oh, oh, right. I think I think that points out something about you as a player and me as a player because I'm more likely to make a decision of yeah I'll put it on yeah yeah, yeah, whereas whereas you'll ponder over it and maybe 
the format isn't suitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For I, 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 try and, just... I try and make roles and use skills to try and discern whether it's harmful or not. Which you're, you're more inclined to go, I'll oh, put it on. Yeah, put it yeah. on. See what, let's see what's yeah. happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's still fun, but I suppose it, like I say, it's, in the back of my mind, you're just thinking, oh, this would be. Maybe what, what I'm thinking when I do a fighting fantasy book is actually this would be fun as a role playing adventure. Yeah. You know, Crypt of the Sorcerer. It, it would be fun as a kind of old school go and find the evil sorcerer adventure with all those encounters in it. Would be fun as a role playing. And maybe my problem is I'm constantly thinking it'd be much better around, around the table with five people that's yeah. doing it this way. That, that's. Possibly the problem, because it's like a fire, a wall like a fire top mountain. There is there is a certain charm about it, isn't there? And, it, and yeah. they, they all they all do have this. They're well written, yeah. and they're quite colourful, and they have a certain charm and a certain something about them that is quite engaging. Yeah. And maybe part of my issue with them is I think oh, it'd be great as a scenario, but it's <laughs> not. It's not. <laughs> okay, then we're going to turn to page one hundred and fifty-three which is Mr. Jim Moon doing his first, last and everything, and we'll come back to the last ago. Are you going to get another painting? I think we should. Hello, folks. Mr. Jim Moon here of the Hypnagoria podcast, here to give you my first, my last and my everything. Well then, my first is Fighting Fantasy, the introductory role-playing game, published back in May 1984. Now, back in the early 80s, like many geeky kids, I'd heard rumours about these strange new role-playing games for a good couple of years. However, being in the north of England in the sticks, I didn't have access to a sci-fi bookshop or a game store where I might see a copy and learn what these new exciting games were about. However, I got to discover what role-playing games were thanks to Warlock magazine. I'd gone into my local newsagent and seen a brand new magazine, one that sported a wizard and a dragon on the cover facing off against a sorceress and some huge tusked horned demon. Flipping it open, I saw there was an article that explained what role-playing games were, how to play them and what you needed to begin. And what's more, apparently in this magazine, you could play one on the page. I couldn't give the shopkeeper my money fast enough, and within minutes I was at home and raiding the family Monopoly set for its dice, which I have to this very day. Shh, don't tell my mum. After devouring Warlock, I was very soon collecting fighting fantasy game books. Me and my best friend were very soon absolutely obsessed with these solo adventures and were tremendously excited to learn that our new gods, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, we're actually going to do a fighting fantasy RPG. Yes, a proper game you could play at the table with those funny shaped dice. And what's more, it would be a paperback, available in all the places fighting fantasy books were. As it turned out, when the book was released, we were on school holidays, which meant the break from school was spent learning the rules and playing the ready-made adventures in the book. We soon, of course, were writing our own and inventing our own monsters and indeed our own worlds. Now, the fighting fantasy system often gets a lot of stick. It's often thought to be a bit too simple. It's okay for a game book, but it's not complex enough to be a proper RPG. Well, it's true the mechanics are very simple indeed. 
But I think in the book, Steve Jackson gave young gamers something far more important than a complex magic system or some brain-batteringly complex way of calculating initiative. In the Fighting Fantasy rulebook, he mainly concentrated on teaching you how to play the game well, how to tell a story, how to build an adventure, how to have fun. If you didn't have a rule, he encouraged you to make it up. And that's what me and my friends did. We not only invented monsters and designed dungeons, we developed our own little add-on rule systems. When one of my characters decided he was a bit bored of all the dungeon crawling and fancied being a pirate instead, we lashed together a simple but fun set of rules for ship-to-ship combat. And many an epic fantasy maritime adventure was enacted on my bedroom floor with lots of bits of paper cut out to represent various ships, sea serpents, islands, etc. And only occasionally did they get eaten by a Yorkshire Terrier. And the thing is, when that did happen, we used to incorporate it into the game. We'd say simply that a huge leviathan of the deep had arisen and sunk whole swathes of ships and incorporated the small dog mayhem into the fabric of our adventure. Which is exactly what the fighting fantasy introductory role-playing system had told us to do. Yes, it was simple, but the point was, it didn't have to stay simple. You could make it more complicated if you liked. And what's more, the book told you how to do so. The book, I think, is just chock full of good advice for games mastering, and I still take a refresher course from the master now and again. Interestingly, however, I think we've gone through a cycle of where games did get more and more complicated, more crunchy, with ever more rules, and then recently with a lot more games being about story and feature lightweight streamlined rule systems. Back in the day when we graduated the likes of D&D and RuneQuest and Stormbringer, we tried to port over our fighting fantasy characters and campaigns to the new systems, but it just didn't work. The free-flowing, anything-goes spirit of fighting fantasy didn't really gel in the more rules-heavy environments of the heavyweight RPGs. However, if the last RPG I played had been out back in the day, it would, I think, have been a perfect match. And that game is 13th Age which strips down the modern D&D system to something, well, a lot more manageable than certain editions of the game I could mention. But it's very much geared up to telling epic stories where your characters aren't just nobodies fighting for survival, but they're heroes with an epic destiny. It's a very fun game to play, and it encourages a very different style of play to standard D&D. And indeed, it has many great ideas that, in particular for story-based play, that I thoroughly recommend you try to port over to, well, any game of your choice. Indeed, after a very long and very crunchy 4th edition D&D campaign, which lasted several years, my little group had a wonderful change of gear with 13th Age, playing a much more eccentric game, where the players and the GM very much almost collaborate together to shape the story you're telling round the table. As I said, it has lots of fun things, ways to define your character which aren't tied up with numbers and rules, but more about your background, your destiny, your hopes, your dreams, and indeed various powerful beings in the world that are taking an interest in you. There's also some system-based mechanics which I think you could have a lot of fun with in other games too. My favourite being the escalation dice, where basically, in combat, after the second round, the players get increasingly stacked bonuses so you can finish the battle in true heroic style and combat doesn't end up taking the entire evening to resolve. 
The game recommends you keep track of these escalating bonuses by putting down the biggest d6 you can find on the table. And indeed, for our game, our GM got one of those big plastic photo cubes and custom printed out dice sides so you could literally put down the world's biggest d6 for the escalation dice. Marvellous fun. So then, on to my everything. And that, of course, is Call of Cthulhu, a game I've been playing for many a strange eon now. And indeed, over the years, I have played it with some very strange Ians as well. In fact, it was one of the very first fully-fledged RPGs I bought. We were on holiday in Poole, if I recall correctly, and I had a big wadge of birthday money burning a hole in my pocket. As was my want back then, I insisted on going in any toy or model shop to see if they had any role-playing gear, and, indeed, in one model shop, they had a huge wall filled with all manner of different RPG and board game goodies. So yes, this was the best birthday ever. I picked up a copy of Mensa Red Box D&D, the Mulvey Cook Blue Expert set, but I still had some money left over. And then a box caught my eye, The Call of Cthulhu, which promised horror role-playing in the worlds of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I hadn't read much Lovecraft at the time, but my literary heroes, Robert Block, Stephen King and Ramsey Campbell, were all enthralled to the old master. And, well, being a horror fan, a horror role-playing game, well, I had to get it, didn't I? It wasn't a game I'd heard of, because Call of Cthulhu was, well, very new at the time, the first horror role-playing game, and this was the British edition printed by Games Workshop, which came in a box full of all manner of glorious goodies. That game opened up whole new worlds for me. It also gave me a great introduction to Lovecraft's literary creations, and indeed the stories written by his friends and other writers who followed in his footsteps. Indeed, to this day I'm still tracking down various stories, novels and works by various writers who contributed a spell or a monster or a blasphemous tome to the wonderful world of the Cthulhu mythos. And even though at times I've been in role-playing deep freeze like the armchair adventurers, but my cryogenics chamber seemed to have a bit of a dodgy lock. For when I look back, I seem to make regular escapes to run a bit of Call of Cthulhu over the years. Sometimes it was meeting up with old gaming friends and we'd do a Cthulhu one-shot. In other instances, I often found that people new to the world of role-playing could be persuaded to play Call of Cthulhu on the grounds it was an interactive ghost story, which was an easier sell than say, hmm, do you want to be a duck in RuneQuest? Certainly, it's a game that's really grown with me, and grown with the hobby too, I think. It was one of the first games to really popularise using props and documents. And what's more, when we couldn't get a gaming group together, we did play it by post, which worked pretty well, considering how many classic old horror stories take the form of a series of letters. I also love the fact that though the game has been through many editions over the years, the actual rules haven't really changed that much at all. In fact, all that's really happened is the rule books have become more detailed, more lavish, more full of good gaming concepts, world-building materials and generally just becoming a better way of presenting the game in each incarnation. Currently the game seems to be enjoying something of a golden age, and look forward to playing it for many a Strange Ian in the future, and maybe with Strange Ian once again. Just play the rules! Uh, welcome back to the Las Agari in Manchester. I've just got my fingers in a few of these uh, pages and I think we're turning now to the fighting fantasy rules. So we're going to talk about 
fighting fantasy as a game. Mm. And you've got this, haven't you? you? And you've played it as well, haven't you? Yeah, I played it um, as well. I, I played advanced fighting fantasy. Advanced There's fighting. Advanced fighting fantasy. Advanced <laughs> fighting fantasy. Of word? course you would. Of course. <laughs> uh, and I played Troika as well. I've run Troika, which yeah. is based around advanced fighting. Yeah, so there's a number of games that are derived, aren't they, from the yeah. fighting fantasy worlds. And I just thought it'd be interesting, this bit. We'll go back to the game books, I think, in the second part of uh, the episode. But I think it'd just be good for us just to talk about it as a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, do you know what? It, it's okay as a game. Yeah. I think it's quite good. It's simple, straightforward. But it's not bad. Got enough going on in it to make it interesting. Yeah. Well, we're back in the pub. And um, we haven't done any face-to-face gaming for no. 18 months. Probably a bit longer, maybe, I don't know. 18 months. And our face-to-face gaming has been curtailed by a global pandemic and Eddie having a smaller kitchen table. That yes, that's become an issue. That, that's a more serious issue, isn't it? The pandemic might end, but when will Eddie get a bigger kitchen table? That it's might never happen. problematic, you know. Yeah. But next month we are going to a convention. There's a new convention. We're going to Leamington Spa and we're going to the Albert and the Wizard staff and I'm going to be playing fighting, advanced fighting fantasy. And I'm looking forward to it. And the reason I'm looking forward to it is as a convention game, I know that this is going to be simple to convey. And that's really important. Yeah, it is. It's simple because one of the pitfalls of convention games is complicated game. You're going to spend most of the session explaining the rules to people if they've never played it before you know which can be frustrating for people who have played it before and know it and frustrating for people who haven't played it but fight, advanced fantasy fantasy is dead simple isn't it it still has the same skill skill stamina look but it it makes it more realistic's not the word is it but it makes it more playable by adding skills doesn't it yeah so you might have a skill of five but you might have athletics at two, which bumps your skill up to seven for athletics, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it develops, I suppose it kind of broadens your character out through the use of skills, some of which are traditional skills and some of which are traits. So yeah. I'm not sure you can have like a strength skill, mm. can't you? Yeah. Which, which means you're stronger than, yeah. If you strength, again, if you had skill four and strength three, You've got strength seven, haven't you? Yeah. That kind of thing. So it mixes, it mixes, it doesn't quite differentiate between an attribute and a skill. It just treats everything as a skill. Just, um, I mean, when you bear in mind that it didn't need to be as good as it is, actually, the game system. No, no. No, it didn't, it, really, did you, it? <laughs> it, it um, many of the choose your own adventure uh, games. Um, didn't actually come with the game or if they did things like Grail Quest were based on Fantasy Trip or there were some TSR ones that were like cut down versions of um, their games or FASA games but this was a self-contained rule system that was explained in four pages four pages and also I suppose not not off-putting to people there's enough in it to make it interesting but it doesn't put people off so I suppose one of the problems you've got with fighting fantasy is you know you can sell it as you are the hero blah 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 
sounds very appealing. One of the biggest hurdles you've got is coming up with a game system that people won't be turned off by. Because that is always the problem with role-playing games, isn't it? Always the problem with role-playing games. The problem we had right at the beginning with role-playing games. I like the idea of a role-playing game. Yeah. So, great. I can, it's like an adventure. And we'll make the story up and we'll, we'll be heroes and one of us will create the monsters. Now, all that's fine, isn't it? But there's one thing in the way, isn't there? And that's the rules and the system. Yeah. And so the biggest... What they do really, really well in fighting fantasies they create a simple little system that is sort of interesting in its own way and then the advanced system is, is more interesting it's, it works in its own way it's just right in that it's not enough to turn someone off no and what we should bear in mind is that obviously they, it didn't need to, they couldn't have anticipated that it would ultimately turn into a tabletop role playing game mm. Steve Jackson, who wrote the first uh, fighting fantasy book, I've got it here. So this isn't the advanced one, this is the initial yeah, one, it's yeah. done in paperback format. And it's unreservably uh, uh, an introductory game, published in uh, 1984, and it is written in a way that it does introduce you really well to the concept. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, because... Who was it who inspired us to start playing? Yeah, it was the article by Steve Jackson in uh, Starburst, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I suppose the fighting fantasy role-playing game book that you've got in your hand right now is more of a gateway into role-playing than the fighting fantasy books, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. Because, and maybe that's the thing, you got maybe got kids who are into fighting fantasy, but only a certain proportion got that. Because that really is the thing that would kickstart you into a role-playing game, isn't it? Yeah. Because it would it makes that leap in, in a very direct way. It makes that it takes the fighting fantasy rules that you know it's, so it says you, you're familiar with these rules because you've been getting the game books, but now it's going to present you with something a little bit different. Yeah. And I think with this and uh, the accompanying Ridlin Reaver. They actually put you through some fairly exotic locations and encounters, made them interesting, but kind of held your hand as a games master to take you through some of the places where there might be decision points or interesting ways of uh, playing at a scene or dealing with the scene. And I do think that if you wanted to show somebody, right, this is a role-playing game, yes. Here you are. It, I think we've said this before, you know, how would you introduce a new pe- person? Dungeon Dragons is far too complicated. This isn't, it's really Yeah, well, that, that's what I mean. That's the thing. You can say to somebody, hey, I play role-playing games, and it's like a story, and you, you, and yeah. you can push all the right buttons, but there is that barrier of mechanics and rules, and if those rules are too much, people can get a bit fed up with them. How much easier would a role playing would role playing have been if rather than RuneQuest we'd have bought Fighting Fantasy that that book? Yeah. It would have been much easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It would have been much easier to have bought that, understood what role playing was, and then graduated onto RuneQuest yeah. or Advanced yeah. D&D yeah. or Travel or whatever, yeah. whereas we did it just in the like an old man day. I'm at granddad. We did it the hard way. We did it the hard way. There's no introductory role-playing games for us. No, we did it the hard way. We had to buy you full-on RuneQuest 2nd Edition box set 
and sit there for six months scratching our head. That's how we did it. We don't worry, there are people who are older than us who said, well, I had to have an in Before you I had to buy the white box, Gary Gygax, and that told you bugger all. <laughs> so with that in mind, so what are the three highlights of uh, these rule sets then? Well, if we talk, I suppose we're talking about advanced fighting fantasy. But I suppose the in, the interesting bit of it is testing for luck, isn't it? Testing for luck, yeah. Testing for luck is interesting. Okay, test. This is testing for luck. Testing for luck. Okay, and what's the, what's the next one? Um, I'm going to say the next one is it's the absence of an initiative rule. No initiative. You know I don't like initiative. There is no initiative. No initiative rules. Uh, and number three is the. Oops table. Oops. Magical oops table. Magical mishaps table. Oops upside your head. Oops upside your head. Right, okay. Right, well, let's uh, go for test for luck. Okay. So, the, it is a quite interesting mechanic, isn't it? Because I'm not sure. There were games that had luck. There were games that had luck. So, RuneQuest had luck, didn't it? Power Times 5. Power was indicator of luck. And yeah. Cthulhu had luck. And Tunnel of Trolls had luck. But... Advanced Fighting Fantasy did it. It presented you with luck as a resource that you could use yeah, to influence it, things. Even in the even in the game books, yeah, you it depletes test, it. You deplete, it depletes, and you could test for luck um, and do two extra damage, couldn't you? Yeah. So that yeah. idea that it wasn't just the games master, or the games master in Fighting Fantasy books, but it wasn't just like the games master go raw, do power times five for luck, power times three like a room class or Cthulhu. Uh, it was it was the player saying, "I'm going to burn, burn some luck." How many times now you play a game where people burn luck? Yeah, and and it's there, isn't it, in fighting fantasy? Yeah, you know, and it might it might have been in other games, but from our our experience, the games we played didn't have that concept of no burning luck. Really, no. they had luck, but didn't you didn't burn it? You didn't spend it. And, and I can see in a, a tabletop, constructing, constructing a tabletop game or tabletop scenario that that element of luck and that luck resource is going to be key, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, because it, unlike in the books or in the game books, you're not going to have as many opportunities to replenish it yeah. and it's going to, going to become more vital. Yeah. So, as you say, I think it's good that you can use that luck in combat to find a, you know, a break in somebody's armour or you know, just to do some extra damage. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. But then in, in the actual role-playing game, the advanced role-playing game, those you can use luck in different ways, can't you? Yeah. So you yeah. can suggest something and, it, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like old hat because you think, well, yeah, of course you can. Everyone can do that in Pub Cthulhu. Pub Cthulhu is a good, good yeah. example. And Cthulhu 7th edition, good examples of luck being burning luck. Yeah. But, but this is 19, what, 1984, isn't it? So it's uh, not... Yeah. It's not quite as prevalent no. then. And, and also, um, obviously, it's earlier, isn't it, for the, uh, the actual game books. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way that, the way that you, they, they use that in the kind of uh, mechanics of the uh, game book as well, that you can spend luck to yeah. change an outcome and that kind of thing. Where I think it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, 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 it's interesting is um, that you, you, have these resources there's only three that you've got you've got skill stamina and luck I always found that if you you were offered the chance to have a portion 
at the beginning of every adventure, I would always have a luck potion because I would burn through my luck <laughs> yeah. because I want to get through the uh, the monsters, deplete the monsters quicker. So I would always end up testing my luck to do more damage. Well, yeah, yeah that was always one of the tactics you see to get get to kill the monsters as quick as you could because yeah. the monster. This is what I was saying earlier that you, you once you got into a fight, you were locked into a fight. Yeah. So luck was. In some ways, I suppose luck was offering in a little way the thing that I found was lacking. It gave you a bit of agency, didn't yeah. it? It gave you a little, not more, it gave you a bit of agency in the fight to say, I'm spend luck to do more damage. Yeah. So you had that agency to push the luck to get through. Because once yeah. you're in the fight, you're in the fight. You've got to finish it, you've got to kill it, or it's going to kill you. There's no yeah. running away. So burning luck is a way of pushing through the fight. So I've not, I, I've not played it yet. I'm preparing a game uh, to play it, mm. and this is probably the first time that I've spoken on a podcast where I've not actually actually played the game yeah. that I'm talking about. But you have. I've played it. Yeah. How does it How does it play out? Looking the actual uh, game and the table. And it plays out in the same way that you can do more damage. But as a games master, when I've when I've run it and I run Troika. It's a useful tool for a games master, yeah, and it, and it gives players that opportunity as well to to play their luck and push push. There's like a push and pull between the games master and the players in terms of using luck. Yeah, okay. So that's a test for luck, and um, the second one is no initiative. <laughs> you don't use your initiative. No, I was was told that that was a bad thing. Well, yeah. in advanced fighting fantasy, there's no initiative, is there? No. There is no initiative, even though. I was looking at it last night thinking, is there no initiative? Because <laughs> in Troika there is. Well, come on, mate, come on to that. But in the advanced fire fantasy rules, there, there isn't, is there? No. You know. But then again, it's not, obviously, it's not as locked in as a fighting fantasy book. So when you encounter a monster, you, you can do other things than just fight it. Yeah. But the, the turn order. There isn't a turn order, is there? No. But then, so what? Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone care? Does anyone care about initiative? I don't care. No. I hate it. Well, I think uh, <laughs> I think that it, combined with that is that it's simultaneous action, isn't it? So every it's, time, every, yeah. every time you do something, um, either the um, attacking party or defending party can actually yes. have an outcome. Yes. Well, it's like an, yeah, it's an opposed role, isn't it? So you yeah. roll dice and you add your skill and they add their skill. Whoever gets the highest does damage. Yeah, so even if you're attacked by the monster, you, I suppose you, you get a, it's like a fight back, isn't it? Almost. Yeah. You, yeah. you react to it. But that said, because it's a role-play game, not a game book, you do have more options, don't you? Yeah, you could cast a spell. You could, you could cast a spell. You could talk to someone. You could do something, couldn't you? Rather yeah. than just fight, just locking, just kind of you know, doesn't necessarily have to lock into combat there. But there doesn't seem to be an initiative. No, there doesn't, there just doesn't seem to be one. But I, but I've, I've picked it as a good thing because again, is that ahead of its time? Who cares about initiative? Yeah. Yeah, particularly when something's going to happen every turn. I mean, I'm getting increasingly, I increasingly like those fight back type yeah. Um, yeah, situations because yeah. yeah. it means that every time you roll a dice, some, there's going to be an outcome to it. Yeah, 
Well, Troika, I mean, Troika brings initiative into advanced fighting fantasy by having this idea of a, uh, you have a bag with chips in or dice in. And I'm, I'm going to use this. Yeah, 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 and it does. When I've run Troika, I think it's a good, it's a clever way of doing initiative. So each player gets two. Um, if you do it with coloured dice, little V6s, every player gets two coloured dice, which are their colour. One player might be blue, or red, green, whatever. And the monsters get some dice based on their initiative level. So it might be four, six, two, whatever. You put their dice in. And then you have an end of turn dice as well in there, or chip in there. Yeah. And basically every round you draw out a token or a dice or chip. So it's blue, right, blue player, it's your turn. Red, red player. Uh, black, if the monsters were black. Black, it's a monster, this kind of thing. And then eventually you'll dry at the end of turn, and that's the end of the turn, you put them all back in. So in theory, it's quite, it's quite unpredictable. Yeah. In, the, in theory, a player might not get to go that turn because a chip might not be drawn out. And it might be the end of turn chip that's drawn out before their chip's drawn out, therefore it starts yeah. again. But you're right, the fight back thing, the opposed role thing means that players are still involved. So even if you're not acting, if you're attacked you have a chance to inflict damage on the opponent, yeah. which which moves the game on quite a bit. I don't think that initiative system would work without a fight back, because otherwise you'd get a player who wasn't, potentially wasn't doing anything yeah. for a couple of rounds. It is a quite an interesting, and we, we mentioned it before, I think, uh, when we did a, a Thunder Phase, uh, yeah. I think, and we described it as a swingers uh, initiative system <laughs> where you... Yeah. Throw your um, tokens in, <laughs> yeah, a, in, in a jar, <laughs> throw them back, and, and, and withdraw them. But I've since learned um, from uh, Goat Major mm. uh, Simon that actually that's a quite a familiar initiative system yeah. from wargaming. Yes, yeah. and what they do is throw in events as well. So chuck in an event, yeah. Uh, yeah. so like a sudden wind. Or some other external force that you can draw in that uh, put put into the pot that could get drawn out as part. That that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Because what you can do, I say, the exciting thing about the Triker Initiative is it's unpredictable. Yeah. So you're kind of thinking, I've got two chips in there now. There's a big bad monster. I want my if my two chips come out one after the other, that gives me a massive advantage. If that monster's got six initiative chips, it draws one, then another, then another. We're really in trouble. So it does make yeah. it quite exciting. Makes initiative exciting, and that's the thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I have nothing against initiative. I have, don't like it. <laughs> but one of the things is it's boring. Yeah. Uh, no, for initiative. Oh, God, it's boring. Like, like I said, I think a few podcasts ago, kills it kills the excitement. No, yeah. for initiative kills it. But the Troika method. It's not Troika, but that, that war game, let's call yeah. it the war gamer method. It's actually exciting. It, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't kill it. It actually makes it quite exciting because you think, oh here we go, I don't know what's gonna come out of the bag now. Yeah. And as you say, imagine playing Troika and you threw in a few really bad events. Yeah. Yeah. What's Earthquake? Um, Earthquake's going in. Right, yeah. Earthquake's going in. Earthquake might come out. Yeah. That'd be quite it would be exciting. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it points to the simplicity of the fighting fantasy system that Troika and other games like uh, Quarrel and Fable um, yeah. and uh, some of the some other games they can 
hack them, change them, and they feel like they can add things to them, and yes. that's uh, yeah. that's the beauty of it, I guess, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very flat, very, very flexible, hackable, hackable, hackable is the word I think people trendier than us would use. Yeah, we oh, use kit, bash. kit bash, kit bash, kit yeah, 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 that's it. Okay, that's what cool people would do, not us. Okay, and. Uh, Number three is the oops table. Oops upside your head. Oops upside your head, the oops table. Yeah, in Advanced Fighter Fantasy, there's like a magical mishaps table, isn't there? And Trika does the same thing. Trika is a bit more brutal. Um, but yeah, if a spell goes wrong, if you roll if you can't roll to cast a spell, and I think if you roll a six, you have to roll under your skill, don't you? If you roll a natural six, natural 12 rather, two sixes, uh, you have to roll the magical mishaps table. Some of them are quite funny, and some of them are quite disastrous. So I think there's one where your shoes set on fire, and you have the best of the adventure in those shoes. It sounds, which sounds like it isn't a problem, but a good game master make that a problem. Wouldn't yeah, it? yeah. Would, would, if you're a wizard, would you have to carry a spare pair of shoes in case that happens? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another one where all the gold you carry turns into butterflies, and yeah. flies away, which again is brilliant. If you're a treasure hunter, you've got a stack of treasure and then it all turns into butterflies yeah you can, you can imagine a, a sorcerer who has a cloak made up of shoe compartments because he's been badly affected by this it's nice because I think in, in such a simple game it does add a real degree of chaos and colour I think that magical mishaps table yeah. and the, one, the one in Trika is even better I think it's even a bit more brutal on it, Troika. Mm. But it, I, I do like that kind of thing, that it, it just adds something to the game. And again, I don't know, I don't know whether Advanced Fighter Fantasy one of the first games to do that, but, you know, you do get a lot of games now, but it's there in Advanced Fighter Fantasy, and it does, I just think it adds something to it. It's interesting with the, when you look at the game books how magic was introduced. So the uh, second uh, game book was The Citadel of Chaos by Steve Jackson. And Steve Jackson was always the one who was kind of pushing the boundaries of what was yeah. possible. He introduced magic in uh, Citadel of Chaos and in Sorcery, which was yeah. the penguin book of, uh, so aimed at adults supposedly. Um, I, I, I loved it. I, I loved sorcery, but we'll perhaps talk about that another time. Um, and they had like a spell book, and the way that that works is that you had to memorise right. the spells. Yeah, were well, like three three word spell, three letter spells, weren't they? Pop. Yeah, yeah, Whatever. yeah. Another one called pop. Other one yeah. called yeah. You had to memorise those actual words, didn't you? Yeah. So th- yeah. Th- yeah, three letter words to 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 use them in a kind of a more advanced version of the uh, game book. And although advanced fighting fantasy doesn't really use that, um, Quarrel and Fable does use it. Use that. I think I'm going to introduce that for the convention game. Just get the uh, whoever's playing the uh, sorcerer to try and remember. To actually remember them. Yeah, just yeah. get just give it. funny, and again, that is is a funny side of it. The magic system. Again, there's the ups table, but also that the sorcery element of it, which is in advanced fight. You can't see it has about yeah. three magic systems in, doesn't it? Three yeah. variants. That one. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun, isn't it? To, like to, of, to remember it. Yeah, yeah. try actually. You got to try and remember this. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like, and what's, character you? 
yeah. And whilst it, you know, you could complain that it uh, puts a lot of pressure on the player and it and it's not very gaming, but it's just fun. It's isn't fun, it? isn't it? It's yeah. fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's fun. what I mean. And that I bit like that initiative with Troika. It's it's fun. You can argue that it, it's not very realistic, but it's but it makes the game exciting. Yeah. It makes it exciting. The idea of trying to remember you have to actually remember the spell yourself to use yeah. it. Yeah. In a high pressure situation, it's a lot of fun. That's just fun. Yeah. yeah. That was not to like. Okay, and then uh, finally, what is the aspect of f- advanced fighting fantasy that you don't think works as well? I think thing doesn't work quite as well as it could. These monsters. I think, although there's a lot of monsters for advice, it's the out of the pit thing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's quite a good book, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Obviously, because it uses the art from the uh, game books, it's yeah. quite an attractive thing to own, isn't it? And there's some good monsters in colourful monsters, but mechanically, they don't do much. Yeah. Their skill, stamina, and they might do a bit more damage here and there, but they don't have much pizzazz. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that because obviously the game books depend a lot on the construction of the encounters, don't they? Yeah. And I think in this uh, book that I've got of Steve Jackson's, it does like, encourage the games master to spend a bit of time thinking about how the hobgoblins might set a trap to trip them yeah. up and blow raspberries and make them a bit more yeah. interesting. But there's nothing intrinsic to the stat blocks, is no. there, that make them interesting? Not really. And, and it's particularly, it's kind of interesting, again, to compare it to the magic, where the magic is quite colourful. But that doesn't seem to translate down to the monsters. Yeah. As if almost, well, if you can come up with this oops table of things like gold turning into butterflies and shoes setting on fire and all that kind of stuff, that's interesting, but why can't the monsters do stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. They, they tend, with a few exceptions maybe, they tend not to, they tend to just do a bit more damage. Yeah, and I think it's because they derive from the game books. Yeah. In the game books, yeah. the monsters are the most memorable aspect of it. Yeah. But take them out of uh, that context and that situation that they're in, there's nothing, there's nothing well, else. And, and I think that comes back to the difference between the game book and a role-playing game. Because yeah. in the game book, a monster with a skill of 12 and a stamina of 20, if you're doing the game book, you think, oh, blimey, that's, that's frightening. That's going to, you know, in a fight with that, it's going to struggle to beat it. But once you take something like that and stick it into a role-playing, traditional role-playing environment, the players aren't going to be as phased because they're just going to see as number crunching exercises out if they can come up with ideas to reduce its stamina without fighting it through magic or through trickery then they will won't they so what you need is that monster needs to have a bit more to it doesn't it to make yeah. it more interesting round the table yeah and I think that's the that's the difference isn't it yeah and, and the, yeah and it's that thing of having a party isn't it rather than a one on one encounter because yeah. um, I've found that as I'm preparing for this convention game it's just understanding what the balance is you know because people tell me that you know you get a, a stamina uh, 9 uh, 4 even with a party of people it can be quite yeah. difficult yeah or skill 9 uh, 4 it can still be quite difficult to beat yeah because you're still fighting them one on one aren't you 
But even, you fight him one on one because the monster will always react. So yeah. the reaction is not, it doesn't get one reaction. If you have four people coming at some manticore, for example, with a stammer, a skill of nine, yeah. the manticore will always attack back. Yeah. So in some ways, it's kind of easier to manage from a games master's point of view because you maybe only need one big ogre, one big troll yeah. to, to take on a party of four because each time they're trying to hit it with a sword. The troll's going to hit back with a club. There's no yeah. rule, there's no rules about the number of no. react, fight backs it can have. So it's going to hit one of the characters, and they're going to fight back. And then the four characters are going to hit it, and it's going to hit back on each of the four characters, potentially damaging all of them in one round. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But that said, that's the sound of. Uh, Young Manchester, out at work. Welcome to Manchester. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not so much ice cream travel at that speed. Hey! Couldn't resist it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You sort of feel that there should be... Because the thing is, what, what you realise in a role-playing game, around the table, the four characters will not all just hit the troll. Two of those characters might, because they might be fighting the other two might go do you know what we're going to try and set it on fire or do something different yeah and the troll's not got much to respond does it he ain't got much no. to come back at no and that's what perhaps the monsters need just a little bit more pizzazz I think yeah so how does how does uh, Troika deal with that because Troika is uh, a game uh, that uses the fighting fantasy Mechanics, but puts yeah. it into kind of a it gives, multiverse. It, it, it gives, it? Yeah, it gives the monsters a little bit more. It gives the monsters a little bit more uh, something. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what kind of things does it give? Thank <laughs> you, any little. There you go. What a professional. <laughs> so, right, we're going to turn to page four hundred and bring this part of the discussion to and next time we're going to come back and look a bit more closer at the game books and some of the monsters so I think you've got a bit of a homework to do don't yeah you? I'll, need, I'll need to look at the Triker monsters <laughs> <laughs> alright cheers Blythe goodbye this is Bud from Bud's RPG Review a YouTube channel where I review role playing games card games and board games although if I'm honest far less of the last two I do in-depth video reviews of gaming products, all shot from the perspective of just my hands and whatever it is I am talking about. I cover mainstream things like D&D, Call of Cthulhu and Warhammer, as well as out-of-print and hard-to-get-hold-of material, and I take pride in always being thorough and fair. Additionally, I have a smaller sister channel, Budzine Review, where I take a more loose look at shorter material like zines, fanzines and mini-scenarios, with the aim being to do it in under 10 minutes, something I've managed to stick to so far. So if you have the time and the hankering for a fair review in my dulcet scouse tones, then I hope to see you there sometime soon. Didn't really know about Troika monsters. Ah, sorry about that. I'm just completing Blythe's annual performance review. Don't worry, it will be sandwiched between some positives. You don't get to the lofty heights of middle management without that passive-aggressive technique. Thank you to Ian for spending the time with us. There's more to look forward to next time when he shares his thoughts on White Dwarf and some of the board games that he's designed, his career in computer games and some of his current projects.
I'm still excited that I got to interview him. Thanks to to Mr. Jim Moon. Please subscribe to Hypnagoria. It was and remains an inspiration for me. Look out for his episode on fighting fantasy. You'll never feel the same way about a swan again. I'm currently getting ready for the launch of Grogmeat 2021 on the 12th through to the 14th of November. This time it's at your place and in meat space. There'll be an online convention as well as a meetup in Manchester at Fanboy 3 with reduced numbers this year. Watch out for more on the grognardfiles.com website. The best way to keep up to date with current projects, such as Grog Meet, the Book Club, the One Shot Club, the Zine, is on our Discord server. Contact me via Twitter at the Grognard File or on the site thegrognardfiles.com. And we're currently running through some of the classic fighting fantasy game books too. We also have a Patreon campaign. So thanks to everyone past and present who have invested in the future content and projects of the Grog Pod. See the link in the show notes for details. I'm going to play out with Daily Dwarf and Lichway Ed's Sea Shanty for one last time. Adios, amigos. There once was a popular magazine Big on the role-playing game and scene White Dwarf was his name, but despite its name His games had met their fall Oh no, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must take the leave and go Ian Livingston was editor back in the day Till fighting fantasy lured him away The Livigers are here to stay Brian made it so And oh, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must make the leave and go Lord, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must take the leave and go must take the leave and go oh, oh. They must take the leave and go oh, oh. They must take the leave and go oh, oh. Brian was my moonrise